If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You are listening to United States of Crime. As a warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence, racism, and discrimination. There are also a few mentions of a certain nasty word in historical quotes that we are going to sidestep by simply saying the N-word. Enjoy the show. The date of this recording is June 22nd, 2020. The past several weeks have been turbulent in America, to say the least. On May 25th, an African-American man named George Floyd was killed by a white Minneapolis police officer named Derek Chauvin. Officer Chauvin wrestled Mr. Floyd to the ground after other officers had arrested him under suspicion of using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes. When Mr. Floyd was on the ground, Officer Chauvin placed his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. George Floyd died of asphyxiation on the pavement under Officer Chauvin's knee after begging for help. Several witnesses recorded the incident with their cell phones and begged the officers to get off of Mr. Floyd and to call for medical attention, but they were ignored. Officer Chauvin was arrested on May 29th and was charged with second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Three other officers who were present, Tao Thao, J. Alexander Kung, and Thomas Kiernan Lane, were charged with aiding and abetting murder. On March 13, 2020, 26-year-old African-American emergency medical technician Brianna Taylor was gunned down in her own home after Louisville, Kentucky Metro police officers executed a no-knock warrant, despite having no evidence that any criminal activity was taking place there. All charges were dismissed against the officers who killed Taylor. Officer Brett Hankison was later fired because of the murder. 
On February 23, 2020, a 25-year-old African-American man named Ahmoud Aubrey was shot and killed while jogging. Gregory McMichael and his son Travis McMichael, both white, spotted Aubrey exercising in Brunswick, Georgia. The McMichaels took it upon themselves to arm themselves and follow Aubrey. They initiated a confrontation with him and shot him, later claiming that he had tried to attack Travis and that he was suspected in a robbery that had taken place in the neighborhood. Video footage was later leaked to show Aubrey had not tried to harm either man. On May 7th, Gregory and Travis were arrested and charged with felony murder and aggravated assault. Their friend, who had taken the leaked video, was arrested later for felony murder. In late May 2020, protests erupted across the U.S. in response to recent murders of black people by police officers. Several protests became violent, and countless people have been harmed by police force during these events. Marches, riots, and demonstrations continue as I'm recording this. On May 27, 2020, an African-American transgender man named Tony McDade was shot and killed by Tallahassee, Florida police. Authorities claimed that McDade had a handgun in his possession and was suspected in a stabbing that had occurred immediately before the encounter. Witnesses claimed that the officer who shot McDade did not announce himself and did not tell McDade to stop before firing on him. On June 1st, 53-year-old African-American business owner David McAtee was shot and killed by Louisville, Kentucky police. McAtee owned and operated Yaya's Barbecue and was known to feed police officers free of charge. He would often set up a stand in the parking lot of Dino's Food Mart to sell his food. McAtee was manning his stand when he was murdered by police officers. A demonstration was being held in the area, but McAtee was not a participant. As a result of his death, Louisville Metro Police Chief Steve Conrad was fired. These deaths, those of Ahmoud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDade, and David McAtee, are only the latest in a seemingly never-ending parade of black lives lost to police aggression. As tension between social activists, black communities, and police reaches a fever pitch, it is important to keep in mind that the racism that has permeated American law enforcement has been inherently American for centuries. Today, I'm going to be telling you the story of the murders of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. This case, also known as the Freedom Summer Murders, the Mississippi Burning Murders, and the Mississippi Civil Rights Workers Murders, is just one of the countless horrific hate crimes that have been perpetrated against people of color and activists in America. First, we need to know about Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner as individuals. James Earl Cheney was born on May 30, 1943, in Meridian, Mississippi. He was the oldest son of five children born to Fanny Lee and Ben Cheney Sr. As a teenager, Cheney became involved in civil rights and was suspended from his segregated high school for wearing a homemade badge that had NAACP on it, referencing the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Even though Cheney attended a segregated school, the school board was made up of all white people. Out of fear of upsetting the school board, Cheney's high school principal suspended him. 
After graduating high school, Cheney began working with his father in a trade union and continued to attend civil rights protests. In 1962, Cheney was a participant in the Freedom Ride across Tennessee and Mississippi. The next year, he joined the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, in Meridian. There, he worked as an organizer and arranged voter education classes, transportation for CORE workers, and helped community members get involved in the movement. In 1964, Cheney was introduced to Michael Henry Schwerner. Schwerner, born on November 6, 1939, was a Jewish man who grew up in Pelham, New York. The son of a science teacher and a businessman, Schwerner originally wanted to be a veterinarian. In high school, Schwerner was friends with Robert Reich, who would eventually become the United States Secretary of Labor under Bill Clinton. Schwerner attended Cornell University and soon switched his major to sociology. After graduating from Cornell, Schwerner attended graduate school at Columbia University School of Social Work. Schwerner led the Lower East Side chapter of CORE in New York, also known as Downtown CORE. While Schwerner and his wife Rita Schwerner Bender were heavily involved in the civil rights movement in New York, they knew that help was needed in the Southern chapters. So Schwerner and Rita volunteered to work at the Mississippi Corps organization. They were the first white civil rights workers in Mississippi outside of Jackson. Schwerner soon became a known threat to the local Ku Klux Klan, having organized demonstrations and boycotts soon after arriving in Mississippi. Despite receiving near-constant hate mail and death threats, Schwerner and Rita stayed in Meridian. Schwerner said, quote, Nowhere in the world is the idea of white supremacy more firmly entrenched or more cancerous than in Mississippi. KKK members soon began planning to eliminate Michael Schwerner and officially referred to him by the codename Goatee. Meanwhile, Rita and Schwerner were given the task of organizing the Freedom Summer activities in Meridian. 24-year-old Schwerner met 21-year-old James Cheney while working on this campaign. Andrew Goodman, like Michael Schwerner, was a Jewish New Yorker. Born on November 23, 1943, Goodman was raised on the Upper West Side of New York City. He attended Walden School, a private institution that taught progressive values, before enrolling in Queens College in New York City. He spent a brief time working as an off-Broadway actor and befriended a young Paul Simon, but soon decided to focus on anthropology and politics. Goodman joined Michael and Rita Schwerner in volunteering to work at CORE in Mississippi during the summer of 1964. After working at Western College for Women in Oxford, Ohio in the spring, Goodman met Schwerner and Cheney in Meridian. By this time, Cheney and Schwerner were full-time CORE staff members, while Goodman was a summer volunteer. One of the main goals that CORE set out to achieve that summer was to register as many African Americans as possible to vote in Mississippi. For over 70 years, Mississippi and several other states had enacted systemic practices and laws to suppress voters of color. These methods, usually imposed when so-called Jim Crow laws were passed, included poll taxes, education requirements, character requirements, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, and white primaries. Poll taxes were flat fees that any voter had to pay to cast their ballot. The price of these taxes were set high enough that most black Americans couldn't afford to pay them, but white Americans could. It was also common for the names of black Americans who registered to vote to be published in the local newspaper, making black voters targets for retaliation. 
There were also white registrars who could and did waive literacy requirements for uneducated white people, but intentionally failed literate black people. It was not until 1965 that Jim Crow laws slowly became unenforceable after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, but we'll get back to that. CORE had begun the summer campaign with some internal conflict. The organization had decided to recruit white students from northern universities to work in Mississippi. Now, they did this for a few reasons. First, white people were permitted to occupy spaces that black people were not, and they were less likely to be the target of violent retaliation, though they were still not completely safe. It took time and education for the white volunteers to understand the gravity of the racial divide in Mississippi. They had to be taught to prepare for bodily harm, arrest, and even death. These concepts were new to the white volunteers, who had never had to fear for their lives in the North. CORE taught them to protect themselves while in police custody, to never leave a police station alone at night or in isolated areas, and to be aware of who they were with and in what towns. White volunteers, especially women, were not supposed to be seen with black men in certain parts of Mississippi because the KKK attacked and even killed white women who socialized with black activists and the black men who interacted with white women. On Monday, May 25th, Memorial Day, 1964, Cheney and Schwarner gave a presentation at the Mount Zion Methodist Church in Longdale, Mississippi. CORE hoped that the congregation would be open to establishing a freedom school. Freedom schools were places of education where CORE volunteers taught African-American communities about African history, American history, citizenship, voting procedures, political science, reading, writing, and arithmetic. These lessons augmented the sorely lacking public education that black children received in Mississippi and made members of the African-American community aware of their rights. Cheney and Schwarner asked the attendees at Mount Zion to register to vote and told them, quote, you have been slaves too long. We can help you help yourselves. The men then went back to Meridian. But members of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, an offshoot of the Ku Klux Klan, led by Grand Wizard Samuel Bowers, found out that Cheney and Schwarner were visiting the church. The White Knights hatched a plan to lure core workers back to Neshoba County in order to harm them and stop them from registering African Americans to vote. So in mid-June of 1964, the White Knights attacked churchgoers at Mount Zion Methodist Church and burned the building to the ground. On June 21st, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwarner left from the Meridian Council of Federated Organizations, or COFO, in Meridian to drive to Longdale and investigate the church burning. COFO was an umbrella organization for civil rights groups in Mississippi, so Schwarner, Cheney, and Goodman worked for CORE but also reported to COFO. Before leaving, Schwarner told others at COFO to look for them if they were not back by 4 p.m. At around 3 o'clock, the men started along the 38-mile route back to Meridian via Highway 16. They had taken Road 491 on their way to Longdale, but thought that it was too desolate and unkempt to take back. They planned to get on Highway 19 in Philadelphia, Mississippi to expedite their drive because they were expected back by 4. 
They were traveling in a station wagon belonging to CORE, and when they entered the Philadelphia city limits, they noticed that they had a flat tire. As they pulled over to change the tire, 26-year-old Deputy Sheriff Cecil Ray Price began following them and activated his red lights. The vehicle stopped near Beacon and Main Street, and Price radioed for Mississippi Highway Patrol officers Harry Jackson Wiggs and Earl Robert Poe to meet him. Cheney had been driving, and Price arrested him for driving 30 miles over the speed limit. Price claimed that the station wagon had been going 65 miles per hour in a 35-mile-per-hour zone. Goodman and Schwerner were also detained for, quote-unquote, investigation. Nowadays, speeding is not an arrestable offense. All three men were taken to the Neshoba County Jail on Myrtle Street, located just one block from the county courthouse. When 4 p.m. came and went, COFO workers began organizing a search for Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. At 4.45, the COFO office in Jackson, Mississippi was made aware of the missing men. The Jackson workers contacted the local authorities but were told that no one had seen them. A call was made to the Philadelphia jail at 5.30 and Minnie Herring, the jailer's wife, later falsely claimed that this call never came. Meanwhile, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were held in the local jail for several hours. They were told that they would have to stay in custody until the Justice of the Peace could see them to process their fine, despite the amount being plainly posted on the jail wall. Price denied Schwerner's request to make a phone call and left. He came back hours later, collected the fine from the men, and at around 10.30 p.m., they were released and told to get out of Philadelphia. They got back in the station wagon and started toward Meridian. They were driving into a trap. While Price was absent from the jail, he had been in contact with Edgar Ray Killen, a local Ku Klux Klan leader and Baptist minister. Killen called Lawrence A. Rainey, the Neshoba County Sheriff, Bernard L. Atkin, Other N. Burks, Olin L. Burridge, Frank J. Herndon, James T. Harris, Oliver R. Warner, Herman Tucker, and Grand Wizard Samuel H. Bowers. The men planned to ambush the civil rights workers on the road on their way out of town and enlisted the help of other, more junior KKK members. Almost immediately, Price began following them in his patrol car. Close by, another two cars carried nine members of the KKK. Inside the first car, owned and driven by Billy W. Posey, were Alton Wayne Roberts, Jerry M. Sharp, and Jimmy L. Townsend. In Travis M. Burnett's car were Jimmy K. Aldridge, James Jordan, and Jimmy Snowden. While the men waited, they bickered over who would get to kill the civil rights workers when they caught up to them. Other N. Burks was also following Price and the three men. He pulled up alongside Barnett and told him, quote, They're going on 19 toward Meridian. Follow them. The Corps workers pulled into Pilgrim's store along Highway 19 to use the telephone, but decided not to when they saw Wiggs and Poe's Mississippi Highway Patrol car nearby. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner drove on without exiting the vehicle. At one point during the chase, Posey's car experienced carburetor troubles, and Sharp and Townsend were told to stay and work on the car while Posey joined Barnett's passengers. Price stopped Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner on Road 492 and ordered them into the patrol vehicle. They drove north toward Philadelphia with the three men as hostages. 
The car turned onto County Road 515, also known as Rockcut Road, before stopping at the intersection at County Road 284. Once the vehicles were parked, Alton Wayne Roberts pulled Michael Schwerner from the car. He held his pistol up to Schwerner and asked him, Are you that N-word lover? Schwerner began, Sir, I know just how you feel, when Roberts shot him in the heart. Roberts then pulled Andrew Goodman out of the vehicle and immediately shot him in the upper chest near the right shoulder. James Jordan ran to the car yelling, Save one for me, and pulled James Cheney, the only African-American man among them, from the backseat of Price's police cruiser. Cheney tried to slowly back away from the men until he stepped to the edge of the Clay River bank. James Cheney begged the Klansman for his life, but James Jordan shot him in the stomach. Jordan said to the other men, You didn't leave me nothing but an N-word, but at least I killed me an N-word. He then turned back to James Cheney and shot him in the lower back and head. Cheney was brutally beaten and castrated by the men, but it is unclear whether this took place before he was fatally shot, after he was shot, or when he was dead. The Klansmen loaded the bodies of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner back into their cars, swinging them by their wrists and ankles, and drove them back to the core station wagon. They piled the bodies in that station wagon, first Schwerner, then Goodman, and finally Cheney, before following Billy Wayne Posey to Old Jolly Farm, a plot of land where Herman Tucker, a bulldoze operator, worked. The trunk of the core vehicle could barely fit the three bodies, and Cheney's foot had to be stuffed in it at an angle for the latch to close. The ten men met up with Tucker, who had prepared a hole for the men's bodies to be buried, under a dam he had been hired to build. Posey and Aldridge dumped Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner in the hole in the reverse order of their murders. Then, Tucker used his bulldozer to bury them. Afterward, Price addressed the group and said, quote, Well, boys, you've done a good job. You've struck a blow for the white man. Mississippi can be proud of you. You've let those agitating outsiders know where the state stands. Go home now and forget it. But before you go, I'm looking each of you in the eye and telling you this. The first man who talks is dead. If anyone who knows anything about this ever opens his mouth to any outsider about it, then the rest of us are going to kill him just as dead as we killed those three son-of-bitches tonight. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? The man who talks is dead, dead, dead. Price then returned to town to establish an alibi. Tucker was told to drive the station wagon to Alabama and hide it there, but for unknown reasons likely laziness. He left the vehicle off of Highway 21 in Neshaba County near a river. He tried to set the car on fire and left the scene. In 1964, Mississippi did not have its own state investigative agency. So when calling local sheriff stations yielded no leads, Corps reached out to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, then headed by J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover ordered agents to form the first FBI office in Mississippi under the direction of John Proctor. The same day, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy assigned 150 federal agents from New Orleans to assist in the case. On June 22nd, the investigation had officially begun and news outlets had picked up the story. 
The families of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney were asked for comments, and Goodman's family spokesman told the press, quote, The murder of the boys was the first interracial lynching in the history of the United States. Which isn't exactly true. The men's bodies had not been found when this quote was published. The next day, Proctor was informed that the core station wagon had been found. It was smoldering in the woods, having been set on fire but not substantially burned. That day, the case was officially named Mississippi Burning, or My Burn. Joseph Sullivan, a major case inspector for the FBI, was called in to work the case, as were hundreds of sailors from the Naval Air Station in Meridian. The Navy men searched the nearby Bogue Cheeto swamps, and Navy divers scoured the rivers and lakes in the area. During the investigation, searchers found several bodies of black men who had been murdered. On July 12th, a fisherman alerted the FBI when he found the bodies of Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore in the search area. Moore had been expelled from Alcorn A&M College for participating in demonstrations against the lack of academic freedom on campus. D. worked in a local mill, and both he and Moore had been looking for work in Louisiana. The 19-year-olds were hitchhiking in Meadville, Mississippi on May 2nd when they were picked up by Klansmen. The teenagers were brought to a forest where their captors interrogated and tortured them. Afterward, they were locked in the car's trunk and driven to the Mississippi River, chained to a motor block and pieces of train rails, and dropped into the water. Moore's body was cut at the waist and bound by the ankles. Dee's body was found headless and limbless. It took a thorough medical examination for the boys to be identified, as neither their sex nor their race could be determined from the remains. The murders are the subject of season three of the podcast Someone Knows Something by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The body of 14-year-old Herbert Orsby was found in the Big Black River in Canton, Mississippi. He was still wearing the core t-shirt that he had on the last time he was seen on September 5th. Orsby had reportedly been forced into a truck by a white man who was pointing a gun at him. In the days following Orsby's disappearance, white residents joked that, quote, that's what happens to core N-words. There was no investigation into his kidnapping. When investigators determined that D. Moore and Orsby were not the missing core workers, they disregarded their murders. Over the course of the search for Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner, at least five other black murder victims were recovered, but they were never identified. During the search, Rita Schwerner, Michael Schwerner's wife, told the press, quote, The slaying of a Negro in Mississippi is not news. It is only because my husband and Andrew Goodman were white that the national alarm has been sounded. On July 31st, Mississippi Highway Patrol Officer Maynard King sent in an anonymous tip to the FBI. King, who was referred to in reports as Mr. X, told the agents that Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were buried under the earthen dam on Old Jolly Farm. It had been six weeks since the murders when the bodies of the men were finally unearthed on August 4th, the day after a warrant was obtained to search the farm. Under 15 feet of dirt, Schwerner's body was face down, with Goodman's arm draped over him. Cheney was lying on his back. Over the six weeks that they had been buried, the men's facial features had decomposed. An autopsy revealed that Andrew Goodman had red clay particles in his lungs and had been grasping fistfuls of dirt when he died, indicating that he may have still been alive when he was buried.
Local police were called to help with the exhumation. Among them was Deputy Price, who escorted the men's bodies to the medical center at the University of Mississippi in Jackson. All three death certificates listed the cause of death as unknown. 20-year-old Andrew Goodman was buried at Mount Judah Cemetery in Ridgewood, New York. His tombstone reads, quote, He traveled a short while towards the sun and left the vivid air singed with his honor. Years later, fellow Freedom Summer activist Reverend Willie Blue spoke of him, saying, quote, Goodman's richer than whipped cream. He wasn't supposed to die in Vietnam. He sure wasn't supposed to die in Mississippi. When America's brightest are murdered for doing something fundamentally American, suddenly the world knows about Mississippi. It was another nail in the segregated coffin. 24-year-old Michael Schwerner's body was cremated, and 21-year-old James Earl Cheney was buried in Okatibbee Cemetery in Meridian, Mississippi. Cheney's tombstone is inscribed with the saying, There are those who are alive, yet never live. There are those who are dead, yet will live forever. Great deeds inspire and encourage the living. At Cheney's funeral, Corps leader Dave Dennis gave a eulogy. He said, quote, I blame the people in Washington, D.C. and on down in the state of Mississippi just as much as I blame those who pulled the trigger. I'm tired of that. Another thing that makes me even tireder, though, that is the fact that we as people here in the state and the country are allowing it to continue to happen. Your work is just beginning. If you go back home and sit down and take what these white men in Mississippi are doing to us, if you take it and don't do something about it, then God damn your souls. On July 2nd, 1964, just 11 days after Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner went missing, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into law. On October 13th, James Jordan, the man who had murdered James Cheney, confessed to FBI agents. He agreed to cooperate and gave up the names of the other Klan members. On November 19th, Horace Barnett also confessed and gave a statement detailing the murders. By late November, the FBI, led by Assistant Attorney General John Doerr, charged 19 men. By December 4th, the suspects were taken into custody. Among them were Jimmy Aldridge, Bernard Atkin, Alton Wayne Roberts, Jimmy Snowden, Jerry M. Sharp, Billy Posey, Jimmy Townsend, Horace Barnett, James Jordan, Other Burks, Olin Burridge, Samuel H. Bowers, James Harris, Frank Herndon, Oliver Warner, Lawrence Rainey, Herman Tucker, Edgar Ray Killen, and Cecil Price. The men were charged with violating Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner's civil rights by murder and with committing conspiracy to threaten, injure, oppress, and intimidate the civil rights workers. On December 10th, a U.S. commissioner dismissed the charges against the 19 on the basis that the confessions of Jordan and Barnett were hearsay. In January of 1965, the 19 were reindicted by a federal grand jury out of Jackson, Mississippi. On February 24th, federal judge William Harold Cox, a known and outspoken proponent of segregation, dismissed the indictments against all men except Lawrence Rainey and Cecil Price. Cox's reasoning was that Deputy Sheriff Price and Sheriff Rainey were working, quote-unquote, under color of state law, while the other men were not. The case went to the United States Supreme Court, and Cox's decision was overruled, and the 19 men were indicted for the third time. Defense attorneys for the men tried to argue that the original grand jury pool was tainted and that the indictments should be dismissed, 
but a new grand jury also reindicted the 19. While waiting for the trial to begin, several of the perpetrators became local figures. Sheriff Rainey was photographed smirking while stuffing his bloated face with red man tobacco and was rewarded with a free case of chewing tobacco courtesy of Pinkerton Tobacco Company out of Toledo. Rainey also posed for an ad for a local chiropractor. The ad featured Sheriff Lawrence Rainey lying on his stomach on a massage table with the tagline, Civil Rights Got Him Down in the Back, which isn't even a good advertisement. In 1967, the case entitled United States v. Cecil Price et al. began. The trial began on October 7th with Judge William Harold Cox, the same judge who had previously thrown out the indictments, presiding. Now, if this isn't a huge conflict of interest, I don't know what is. The fact that Judge Cox was allowed to hear this case that he had previously decided he didn't think was valid is not acceptable. When the time came to select a jury, the defense used their preemptory challenges against all 17 of the potential jurors who were black. When the prosecution challenged the selection of a juror who had admittedly, quote, been a member of the KKK a couple years ago, Judge Cox denied the challenge and let the man on the jury. As a side note, a peremptory challenge is basically a motion by an attorney to dismiss a juror without giving an explanation as to why they don't want that juror to be selected. Attorneys receive a limited number of peremptory challenges during jury selection. According to Rule 24 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, each side in a death penalty case has 20 peremptory challenges. In a felony case, the government gets six and the defendant gets 10, and in misdemeanor cases, each side gets three challenges. In 1967, Mississippi did and still does have the death penalty as an option, and the method of execution was lethal gas, which was outlawed in 1998. As far as I could find, the death penalty was not on the table for any of the 19. Therefore, the defense should only have been allowed to use 10 challenges, not the 17 they were allowed. Granted, the federal rules of criminal procedure have been updated, and I was not able to find what the preemptory challenge limit was in 1967. The jury ended up consisting of 12 white middle-class men and women. The jurors included Langdon Anderson, S.M. Green, Lessie Lowry, Howard Winborn, Herman Raspberry, Gussie Stanton, Jesse Hollingsworth, James Heflin, Nell Dadu, Willie Arnson, Edsel Parks, and Adelaide Comer. At one point during the trial, James Jordan, Cheney's killer and a vital witness, was rushed to the hospital after suffering a nervous breakdown due to frequent death threats. At first, the jury was deadlocked. Judge Cox invoked the Allen charge, which is used to implore minority voting jurors to reconsider their votes. On October 20th, the jury returned their verdicts. No verdicts were reached for Jerry Sharp, Ethel Barnett, who I could find no information about, and Edgar Ray Killen. Edgar Ray Killen was not convicted because of one jury holdout, who told the public that she was unable to convict him because, quote, she could never convict a preacher. The jurors found Lawrence Rainey, Bernard Atkin, Travis Barnett, James Harris, Frank Herndon, Olin Burridge, Herman Tucker, and Richard Willis not guilty. Deputy Sheriff Cecil Price, Imperial Wizard Samuel Bowers, 
Horace Barnett, Jimmy Ulridge, Billy Posey, Jimmy Snowden, and Alton Roberts were found guilty. Cecil Price was sentenced to six years in prison, but was released after four. Sam Bowers served six of his 10-year sentence. Barnett served his entire three-year sentence. Ulridge served three years as well. Posey served six, Snowden served two of three years, and Roberts served six years of a 10-year sentence. The seven men filed appeals but were unable to win any of them. So on March 19, 1970, they began their respective incarcerations in federal prisons. On November 8, 1970, two of the guilty men, although I couldn't find out whom, were beaten by black inmates in the Texarkana Federal Prison. Eventually, all of the men were released to continue their lives. It wasn't until January of 2005 that the case was reopened. During the 30 years after the trial, several people had begun to collect evidence to use against the murderers. Journalist Jerry Mitchell of the Clarion Ledger wrote about the Freedom Summer murders for six years and uncovered key pieces of evidence. Barry Bradford, a high school teacher from Illinois, got in touch with Mitchell and assembled a team of three students, Allison Nichols, Sarah Siegel, and Brittany Saltiel, to create a documentary about the case. For the documentary, Bradford was able to convince Edgar Killen to speak with him via telephone. This recorded interview proved to be extremely valuable, as was the discovery that Mr. X was Maynard King. On January 6, 2005, 80-year-old Edgar Ray Killen, the Baptist preacher, was officially indicted on three counts of murder by a Neshoba County grand jury. Killen's trial was delayed for two months after he broke both of his legs in a lumber chopping accident. On June 13, 2005, a wheelchair-bound Killen appeared before Judge Marcus Gordon and 12 jurors, nine white and three black. Killen was found guilty of manslaughter on June 21, 2005, exactly 41 years to the day of the Freedom Summer murders. He was also found guilty of recruiting the other members of the KKK who carried out the crime. Judge Gordon sentenced Killen to the maximum of 20 years in prison for each murder to be served consecutively. So on paper, it's 60 years, but really it's 20 years. At the end of the 20 years, Killen would be eligible for parole. On August 12th, Killen was released on a $600,000 bond after filing an appeal on the basis that he was physically unfit to be imprisoned. Killen claimed that he no longer could use his right hand and that he could not walk. However, at a hearing on September 9th, 2005, several people testified that when Killen was out on bail, they saw him walking around town, driving and shaking people's hands with his right hand. His bond was revoked and he was transported to the Central Mississippi Correctional Facility and ultimately the Mississippi State Prison in Parchman. On January 11, 2018, Edgar Ray Killen died in prison just one week before his 93rd birthday. A memorial to James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner was built at the Mount Nebo Church in Neshaba County. The same year as the murders, folk duo Simon and Garfunkel released the song He Was My Brother, which was dedicated to Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner. In 2014, President Barack Obama posthumously awarded the three men the Presidential Medal of Freedom. 
James Cheney's younger brother, Ben Cheney, founded the James Earl Cheney Foundation in 1998 to support and promote civil rights and social justice. In 1966, Andrew Goodman's parents started the Andrew Goodman Foundation in their son's name to promote participatory democracy and activism. On the 25th anniversary of the murders, Carolyn Goodman, Andrew's mother, led a reverse march and held a memorial in New York City, which drew over 10,000 attendees. The speakers at the memorial included then-Governor Mario Cuomo, Maya Angelou, Peter Seeger, Harry Belafonte, and Robert Kennedy Jr. In 2002, a summit in the Adirondack Mountains in the town of Tupper Lake, New York, was officially named Goodman Mountain. Goodman's family still vacations there today. Michael Schwerner was honored in his hometown of Pelham, New York in 2008 when a street was renamed Michael Schwerner Way. Several other memorials to the slain activists have been built since the murders, including a stained glass window at Cornell University, a plaque in Manhattan, and a clock tower at Queens College. At least five films about the murders have been released, including the 1988 movie Mississippi Burning, which is, admittedly, more focused on the FBI than the activists. This case is brutal, infuriating, and undeniably important in the history of American civil rights. There are countless factors at play in the Freedom Summer movement and in the crime itself. The most prevalent aspect is, of course, institutional and personal racism. But what makes someone racist, and possibly more important, what makes them cling to their racist beliefs? Some psychologists have theorized that when people are exposed to negative stereotypes about a different race early in life, they then integrate their learned superiority over that race into their sense of self. Now, a person's sense of self is extremely difficult to change once it's been solidified. In order to alter someone's sense of self, that person must accept an entirely new idea of social order in which they are not part of the superior class, but are equal to those they were taught to view as inferior. The human brain seeks to sort aspects of the world into patterns by which information is recognized and sorted, known as schemas. Social schemas are how people unconsciously organize other people in their own mind. So for example, when the white men who killed Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were forming their social schemas, likely very early in childhood, their brains created a pattern that associated people of color with poverty, inferiority, and worthlessness. This social schema allowed them to gleefully take the lives of black people and white people who acted in aid of African Americans without feeling guilt or remorse. The 19 men who are known to have taken part in the Freedom Summer murders exhibit what we call dominative racism, which manifests as an openly displayed desire to oppress people of color. The more common form of racism that we see today is called aversive racism, which exists as an internal belief that white people are superior to other races, but this belief is accompanied by feelings of guilt and is not consciously outwardly displayed. Aversive racism exists alongside the knowledge that overt racism and discrimination is morally wrong, and so the racist beliefs are often contorted and reshaped into more palatable forms. While dominative racism is expressed through hate speech, avoidance of people of color, violence, and racist policy, 
Aversive racism comes to the surface through adherence to segregationist social rules, a change of demeanor while around people of other races, and what are known as microaggressions. Some psychologists have proposed that racism acts as a kind of psychological defense mechanism used to strengthen a person's sense of belonging to a group as well as their feelings of self-significance and purpose. The desire of people to be associated with a group or cause is not in and of itself insidious, but this desire easily leads to a tendency to foster conflict and animosity toward people belonging to other groups. Psychological dehumanization of different cultures and races is one method by which a person can rationalize and perpetuate emotional and physical harm to others. According to a study conducted by Noir Katili, humans are able, if not prone, to view other people on a scale of humanity. Princeton psychologist Susan Fisk found that when someone unconsciously or consciously considers another person less human, the brain actually activates regions associated with feelings of disgust and disengages parts of the brain associated with empathy. In 1960s Mississippi, dominative racism was normal. Though it's safe to say that the majority of people were not members of white supremacy groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the White Knights, the vast majority of white people believed in segregation and white superiority. Members of the KKK were educated and respected members of the community. Among the people who participated in the murders of Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner were police officers, U.S. representatives, truck drivers, salesmen, restaurant owners, farmers, and ministers. It was common for the town doctors and lawyers to be members of white supremacy groups. And even if someone wasn't actively a part of these groups, they benefited from the institutional racism of the community. White Mississippians enjoyed better schools, although still not that great, more job opportunities and higher pay, better public facilities, more influence in local politics and society, and safety. This meant that there was little incentive for white people to oppose the racist status quo. Race in America is an extremely complicated issue that is still at the forefront of social justice movements. The Freedom Summer murders are often cited as an important event in the civil rights movement of the 1960s, but today we're beginning to see a resurgence in outspoken, diminutive racism. In the first few months of 2020, dozens of police murders of black people made national news, but there have yet to be any convictions of the officers who committed these murders. In recent months, several young black men have been discovered dead and hanging from trees across the United States. In the wake of current civil unrest and movements against police brutality of black people, many suspect that at least some of these hangings were modern-day lynchings, although authorities have readily asserted that they were suicides. One man, 24-year-old Robert Fuller, was found hanging in a park next to Palmdale, California City Hall. Then, one week later, on June 17th, Fuller's brother, Taryn Boone, was killed by police in a reported shootout. On June 16th, an unnamed black teenager was found hanging in front of Earnhardt Elementary School in Harris County, Texas. On June 9th, 27-year-old Dominique Alexander was found dead hanging from a tree in Fort Tryon Park in New York. All of these deaths have been officially suspected or categorized as suicides, but many people are not convinced. 
The hanging of 38-year-old Victorville, California resident Malcolm Harsh on May 31st was considered suicide on June 20th after security footage showed evidence that the hanging was self-inflicted, despite initial claims from his family that Harsh showed no signs of suicidal ideation. America is currently on the verge of radical change, but this change can come in the form of new, more progressive policies and the reshuffling of values, or it can come as a regression in race relations and an increase in systemic discrimination and abuse. When we look back on the murders of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, we need to keep in mind that these were just three of hundreds, if not thousands, of uninvestigated and unsolved murders of civil rights activists and black Americans. During the search for these men, eight previously ignored black murder victims were found with almost no press coverage or attention by authorities. Just think about how many other victims are still missing today. The sad truth is that if James Cheney had been the only man murdered on June 21, 1964, we probably wouldn't even remember his name today. The fact that two white men had to be murdered alongside a black man for the case to be taken seriously is, frankly, disgusting. We cannot ignore that this country was born with the original sin of slavery, discrimination, and displacement of black people and Native Americans. The question is, how much longer do we have to prolong the suffering that resulted from those sins? Why do we still try to justify the unnecessary murders of black people at the hands of white authority figures as if the KKK simply traded white hoods for uniforms, suits, and government titles? Why are some people allowed to take the lives of others just because they applied for a certain job? And why are some people allowed to be killed just because they have a certain skin color or fall into a stigmatized group? The law provides that even those who kill in self-defense prove their case in court. Yet, we have police officers who never have to prove a claim of self-defense, even when that is their justification for use of deadly force. Fear is not an accepted excuse for murder in America, nor is the dislike of another person's race. Yet, somehow, just like 11 murderers and murder conspirators were allowed to evade justice, our modern society allows some people to be less guilty than others for the same crime. Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner's murders mattered in the 1960s, and their legacies persisted. But the current state of racial relations in America is threatening the positive changes that were spurred partly by their deaths. There's a ubiquitous saying that those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. And I don't think America needs to repeat the rampant and chaotic violence that has plagued African Americans for centuries. If the Freedom Summer murders have taught us anything, it's that those who seek to hinder progress may succeed in harming their opposition, but they will not quell the will of the oppressed and the determination of those that fight for freedom. You can find out more about supporting the fight for racial justice in the show notes. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at US of Crime Pod. If you enjoy United States of Crime, be sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, provided that they have a rating system. You can keep up with the show on Instagram and Twitter at US of Crime Pod. My name is Austin Castelli. 
thank you for listening.